0: Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin. I'm David Giles. I'm a lecturer in Anthropology here at Deakin University, uh, although we're not at Deakin University right now. We're in a hotel. Uh, And I'm joined by Tim Neal, as usual, my co-host, who is an Alfred Deakin Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. We're back with episode 12, and this time we're sitting around the table with Dr. Paige West and Joe Chandler. Paige is the Claire Tau Professor of Anthropology at Barnard College and Columbia University. Her work investigates the relationship between societies and their environments, and she's particularly interested in the interactions between Indigenous epistemic practices and conservation science, the linkages between environmental conservation and international development, the material and symbolic ways in which the natural world is understood and produced, and the production of commodities. She's the author of numerous books, including Conservation Is Our Government Now? The Politics of Ecology in Papua New Guinea, and most recently, Dispossession and the Environment, Rhetoric and Inequality in Papua New Guinea. We're also joined today by Jo Chandler, who is an award-winning Australian journalist, who's written about environmental concerns around the world. Uh, She's been covering Papua New Guinea for a decade now, and is the author of the award-winning 2011 book, Feeling the Heat. Uh, Jo also lectures in journalism at the University of Melbourne
1: so without further delay let's get to our conversation with Paige and Joe and we like to start uh, all of these conversations with a little bit of an icebreaker um, about how you got into your respective fields so Paige uh, anthropology and Joe long-form journalism how did you get into these fields and also how did the two of you meet
2: so I'll go 1st I'm what gets called in North America a first-generation college student. And so that means that my mom and my grandparents didn't go to college. And for a lot of first-generation college students, they go to college and assume that the only possibility is to go to med school or business school or something like that or go to law school. And I was on the track to go to med school and then, for various reasons, realized that I do not have the personality that allows one to be caring in that way. And so um, ended up taking a class my senior year in college called Human Ecology with a wonderful man, uh, Dr. Abercrombie, and fell in love with anthropology. And I'd always had an interest in Papua New Guinea. And that class really showed me that I could have a life of working in Papua New Guinea, thinking about human behavior, which is kind of what I was interested in in the med school track. And so that's how I came to anthropology.
3: Uh, I got into journalism in um... I was sort of the last of of the old cadetship programs really and I started on small country town papers and then I worked into suburban papers, uh, broadsheet newspapers at a time when broadsheets were exploding. There were newspapers still opening in Melbourne and journalists being hired by the dozen, which is pretty crazy to think about now. Um, and I, I I guess in terms of long form, I came to it really through, through this very... Um, layered uh, sort of levels of experience and at various times I was the medical reporter for a period of time at the age which really taught me how to read a journal, how to engage in complexity, how to find sort of bite-sized narratives out of um, everything from sort of raw science to the hospital scene to hospital economics or health economics. So it was always about trying to find how do I find a way with people and the story into these issues that we ought to know about. Um, And then I was investigative reporter for a while which really taught me about how to kind of you know go deep on stories and really sort of dig around in the back end of them and see and also to not accept what might appear to be the reality at first glance but to sort of be put in the time and effort to go deeper and then I spent seven or eight years as a senior editor which persuaded me that I really needed to get back out of the office and that it was a whole lot more fun in the world and there was only so much editorial tribal politics that I really wanted to engage in so between those things I guess I kind of emerged at 40 um older, wiser and, and a bit more humble in lots of ways and wanted to tell really long-form, deeper stories and that's when I started wandering off into various wildernesses and remote places.
1: And was that how the two of you met? Was it in Papua New
3: Guinea? No. No. Well, it, I, actually, I came across you in that I heard stories about you in Garoka mm-hmm. from a mutual friend. So that was the first I heard of you. But. And I stalked Joe. <laughs> that's, the, that's the real answer. Excellent. So, you
2: know, as an anthropologist, one is always kind of looking out for stories that are written about the place in the world that they work. And the vast majority of reporting about Papua New Guinea is incredibly problematic, as I'm sure you and your listeners know. And Joe wrote TB and me, and that's when I stalked you. I tracked her down. It was it was a while ago, and it was kind of not easy to find her email, and I sent an email and basically said, I love you. Will you be my
3: friend? Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, that's an interesting moment because I guess at that point I was um, – doing quite long form stories I'd begun to I'd started getting a bit obsessed with PNG my editors were not very happy about this obsession because Mm. they didn't think there was much readership or interest it's expensive it was taking me a really long time to crank these stories out because I realized how complex they were Um, and but luckily by then I'd started as a freelance and I was working for a short-lived enterprise called the Global Mail Mm. which was a philanthropically funded um, fabulous organ that is now completely blown up and vanished. But but for a minute there it allowed some really interesting deep journalism, particularly in the Pacific, which is, has since been neglected. But it was so funny to hear from Paige. I was so um, validated, I guess, and <laughs> because I felt like I'd been messing around in the dark and I didn't know whether what I was doing had any impact or had whether it was worthwhile. I just kept getting in trouble for editors for taking so long about doing it.
0: Mm, um, that happens to us too.
3: Yeah, so it was great to have somebody say, you know, pat you on the back and say, you know, what you're doing is worthwhile and important. And I, you know, it was a really important moment for me and kept me going when I might easily have just said, this is just too hard.
2: Mm. Well, and there's a complexity. I mean, as you know, there's complexity to telling an anthropological story and thinking about how far back in time you go, thinking about how far out in space you go, because you can really go as far as you want to go. And one of the things that attracted me to Joe's journalism was that kind of understanding that there has to be a starting point that is ethnographic. There has to be a thing in the world that matters and going out from there and connecting things to Climate change or political economy, or to deep history or to colonial history, and figuring out how to do that in a way that is then accessible to a reader and draws the reader into the lives of the people that you started with ethnographically. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about anthropology. And, you know, what attracted me to anthropology, in addition to that course that I took, was also that sort of impulse to tell stories and to do it in a way that matters to both the people who are being told stories about and the people who. Who are reading those stories. Mm.
1: Mm. So the anthropologist Gabrielle Hecht has recently written about the need for what she calls interscalar vehicles in the stories we tell today. And I really like this metaphor because mm-hmm. it self-consciously goes back to a kind of sci-fi idea of, yeah. you know, these tiny vehicles which are travelling across scales. And one of the real strengths of your work page, for me, and it's been very influential on in my own work, is your interest in giving us different views of a place like the Eastern Highlands as a social reality at kind of very different scales. Mm-hmm and then revealing some of the links across those scales through something like coffee, let's say. Mm -hmm. Do you remember a moment where you started thinking in these terms, like this was the way to narrate this place? Because you say you started in anthropology from a human behavior perspective, Mm -hmm. so very much kind of, let's just talk about the local bounded place, and now you write completely against that. I was wondering, was there a moment uh, where you came to that realization, this is the way to tell these stories?
2: I think there were two moments. Um, One of them is that, so I started out, I went to graduate school in the 1990s. And so I was being trained at a time when almost nobody was thinking they would go and work with, nobody in the program I was in was thinking they would go and work with an indigenous population, right? This was very much a time of studying up. This was a time of studying back at home. It was a sort of post-critique of anthropology, kind of beginnings of decolonizing anthropology and so I developed this project thinking about nature and conservation in Papua New Guinea and really focusing in on Euro-American Australian folks who go over to Papua New Guinea to do work and I never thought I would go live in a village and I was in Garoka at the offices of a conservation organization that I was going to write about for my PhD and this lovely wonderful difficult man named Mr. <laughs> Kusiyama um, who's uh, from the eastern highlands from Maimafu village came into the office and I was talking to him and he said to me in no uncertain terms that you can't understand anything unless you understand everything and that was the exact phrase that he said and it reminded me and this is going to make me sound much more sort of literary than I am but it reminded me of Salman Rushdie And it reminded me of um, Midnight's Children, where he has that wonderful, wonderful sentence where he says, to understand a life, you have to swallow the world. And I started Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, wait, to understand this tiny little thing that I want to understand about environmental conservation, I need to think much more broadly. So that's the first one. And then the second one is that, you know, one of the ethnographies that made me fall in love with anthropology was Pigs for the Ancestors. Um, So for people who don't know, that's a classic ethnography about the highlands of New Guinea. And, you know, Roy Rappaport, who wrote it, was one of my heroes. And it's just this beautiful analysis of ritual and ecology and the marring people. And it just is this tightly woven little ball of their life. And, I mean, it's, it's really kind of a bounded culture ethnography in a very boasian tradition. And you know, I read that, I thought, oh my god, that's amazing. That's not what I want to do because I'm, you know, 1990s woke, but <laughs> but right I want to, I want to do that kind of writing and get to the highlands and realize that while he wrote everything he wrote is amazing and wonderful that people were growing coffee while he was writing that ethnography, that the entire economy of the Eastern Highlands was enmeshed with the global trade in coffee since the 1920s. And so I started thinking about how in the world we can tell an ethnographic story without having that multiple layers of time and scale.
0: Does being friends with a journalist shape how you approach the sort of tacking back and forth between scales?
2: I mean, the other piece of it, I guess more so than journalism, is that I was trained by geographers in addition to being trained by anthropologists. And Mm -hmm. so one of the people I worked with was Neil Smith. And Neil was all about scale, but all about taking apart the notion of scale Mm -hmm. and having us think really critically about what we're bringing into our analysis when we assume scale. And so that's been been incredibly Mm -hmm. influential. The thing that's influenced me about journalism is writing in a way that is actually readable. I mean, Mm. because that is for a great deal of anthropology, and I'm so sorry, anthropologist, (laughs) I have to say it. (laughs) For a great deal of anthropology, that is increasingly something in the past. I mean, I find much of what's written today unreadable. And so kind of thinking about how do we still tell these just wonderful stories and also do it in a theoretically grounded and theoretically driven way, but in a way that people can read. And I think good journalism does that.
0: Mm -hmm. I often find myself forcing myself to read fiction uh, and i do urban studies so i I find myself forcing myself to read fiction about the city when i don't have time to but i need to because i need to remember how to how to stage a paragraph and how to stage a a narrative Uh, so on that uh on that note you've written quite thoughtfully about the importance of a a publicly engaged anthropology Mm -hmm. uh, and you know you've made recommendations both for how we write and also for how we value writing, or how what sorts of writing we incentivise. So uh, you blog, and you already write beautifully and very, very clearly. So you're, you're already doing that. But beyond that, what does it take for an anthropologist's voice to carry? What ways have you found your work being picked up, and what makes it carry that way? Um, and I also I wonder what's left to do for us. Like how do we how do we as a discipline how do we get better at that?
2: I don't know. Let's have a conversation about it because I don't know. Mm. I mean, the I wrote a silly blog post, a silly, angry blog post about <laughs> mansplaining um, and about this jerk that I work with. Mm, and mm-hmm. those I was two, trying to guess who that was. Well, <laughs> nobody in anthropology. It's somebody in the natural <laughs> sciences. But, you know, those two blog posts have been read more than any of my books. And my books are pretty widely read within mm-hmm. anthropology and geography and the mansplaining blog post has been read 60,000 times. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. how do we do that? I mean, how do you Mm -hmm. do it as scholars? What kind of advice do you have, Joe, for anthropologists? Because I think part of it is just getting out there and doing it, right? Doing podcasts, writing for a more general audience, Mm -hmm. contributing to blogs that anthropology journals have, but what else can we do?
1: Is that kind of, just quickly, is that kind of labor valued though in, in, in academic economies in the States?
2: No, absolutely not. And that's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, as it um, sounds hilarious to say, but as a senior person in the field. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> which, which, people, if you could see me right now, you would laugh at that too.
1: You'd know that she's sitting on a large crown. <laughs>
2: know but as a senior person in the field and I think for you too also you know how do we shift institutions to value that kind of more public writing and thinking about how we shift in the states at least tenure committees promotion committees and then the other people that validate what we do not in a scholarly sense but in a kind of you get to keep your job for the next number of Mm -hmm. years Mm sense. um so no it's not valued in the states and that is one of the things that I think we need to change
1: Mm -hmm. And so, Joe, you were mentioning before there was a certain kind of labour in trying to get um, editors interested in in, in telling stories about Papua New Guinea. So what what are some of the things that you think enabled you to cut through those obstacles? Uh,
3: Really a bit of luck existing at a particular moment in time. I I mentioned before about the Global Mail, which was well-resourced for a short period of time and basically said take as long as you need to write a story. I mean... No newsrooms do that. No editors do that, particularly in this disrupted era. But what it did was it gave me an opportunity to go quite deep on stories that otherwise, if I'd still been working for The Age or if I'd been a freelance, I just would have not been able to do it. And even though the global mail has vanished, it's meant that I've got that whole bulk of all of that experience to draw on for the next sort of round of stories. But coming back to you with what you were talking about, about how to engage, you know, how to get anthropological stories and, and to get these kind of, the sort of the kind of writing that Page does and the kind of insight that you've got into communities and how that then connects with the political and the economic narratives mm-hmm. that are coming out, it makes me think about James Hansen, the NASA Goddard uh, specialist in climate change, you know, sort of passionista these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote this piece you know, back at kind of what we thought was the height of the climate wars, but it keeps heightening, uh, at least here. But Mm -hmm. he wrote this piece, I remember, in one of the journals, um, sort of uh, this appeal to science um, specialists, climate change specialists, to kind of climb out of the towers and to get angry, get passionate, be afraid, talk about their fears and, Mm -hmm. and to really kind of sell and tell the story about what their research was actually unfolding and to cast aside scientific reticence. And I remember running around talking to a lot of um, senior Australian specialists at the time, climate scientists, saying, what do you think about this? And they they were horrified. And they said, Mm -hmm. if we give up our scientific reticence and our rigour and our care around the way we engage in this, we've got nothing. We're just another uh, loud voice in this. We're just Mm -hmm. another um, sort of advocate. And all our power relies on our professionalism as academics and scholars Mm -hmm. to present this. But sort of fast forward 10 years and you have something like what's occurred on the Great Barrier Reef in the last couple of bleachings and a scientist like Terry Hughes at JCU who has led that, who put up uh, after the first bleaching event in 2016 this map that showed the devastation of the top of the reef and the tweet that he put with it was, you know, we've just shown this to our students and then we wept. Now that Mm. tweet went completely viral And he hasn't given up his scientific rigour but he's become an absolutely engaged, fearless Twitter Mm. activist around telling the story. And that has made him vulnerable to attack by, you know, certain parties but he doesn't care because he's still getting published in Nature and he's still getting the story out there and he's giving it the gravitas and the kick that it needed to get somewhere and make a difference. So I guess... And recently, um, I was thinking in the anthropological terms. I've just written this long piece about um, the PNG LNG, which is sort of something that's kind of come out of 10 years of watching that evolve and, and listening and being plugged into these sort of social science networks of people going, there's something bad brewing here. Mm. And they're all in different parts of the story. But when I started digging into it, I ran across Michael Mayne,
1: mm-hmm.
3: who at that point, I had written a piece for The Conversation that was very accessible, mm-hmm. very passionate, very informed by his own perspective, and that had gotten some traction. Um, and by the time I spoke to him about his where he was going with it, he was beginning to do a report for Jubilee that's just come out. So obviously non-traditional mm-hmm. publications mm-hmm. told in an accessible way. He and I have worked together in the back end for him to share some of his research for me to incorporate that in my story that went mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. in the monthly. Um, at the same time, I was sending off emails to, I think at one stage I had a dozen or so anthropologists and social scientists where I asked <laughs> a very, you know, a question that then exploded. to, you know, saying, so how do I, or how do I represent tribal fighting within the context of what is occurring now in the PNG LNG? How much is this conflict about the fallout, or in some way or other, to this project, and how much is it about? you know identity and 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 you know tradition and 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 of course this is a deeply loaded question and I've gone and thrown it out there and I I got Dozens of emails back in this circular arguments of people engaging with one another as scholars, and and out of that, I just kept picking the little bits that I might, you know, either usefully inform the the way I came into, you know, shaping the story. A lot of it's not there, but it directed where I went. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because I can't use a lot of it because it's it is scholarly, and I'm writing for a mainstream publication, and I'm having to, um, you know, sort of really unpick it. But what it does tell me that generous conversation that I'm allowed to sort of sit on the on the outer and mm-hmm. watch it unfold is, well, I really don't want to go there because there's no legitimacy to that, so I need to take the story over this way, and that will reflect the tenor of what most of the scholars are telling me is an authentic way to represent the story. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So. I recommend people go and read the piece. It's called Papua New Guinea's Resource Curse. Mm. Uh, it's an extraordinary piece, uh, but uh, as you say, uh, anthropologists feature very heavily as your know, kind of sources of authority and I thought that was kind of extraordinary as well because a lot of Melanesian kind of a- anthropologists who do their trade in Melanesia aren't these kinds of public figures mm. and to see them uh, quoted at length and and understandable in a in a popular publication was kind of an extraordinary uh, experience for me, and I've yeah shared that piece.
3: I think that has to be the way that it goes because you no longer have a resident journalist. Um, you know the old model of the foreign correspondent who lived in a, a you know there used to be a dozen of them in PNG. You know, 70s or uh, even the early 80s, you had six or seven Australian correspondents in. Um, in PNG and through the Pacific there's now one Um, and that one will turn over every two or three years and that one is intensely vulnerable to political pressure and Mm -hmm. can't always tell the stories that he or she wants to tell so they kind of need the parachute Mm -hmm. serial parachutists like me to come in and out Mm -hmm. to do stuff that will get them chucked out Uh, so um, but what that means is that the parachute journalist has often no idea what they're talking about they yeah. don't have language they don't have contacts they don't have context mm-hmm. uh, so how do we get over that and to me the only way it would make parachute journalism which I'm really conflicted about how useful it is mm-hmm. the only way it's going to work is if we engage with pe- scholars and and people that have spent a lot of time on the ground and keep checking back in with them this is what I saw this is what I heard does that make sense how does that fit in the bigger story
2: And I think one of the things this conversation is making me think about is how, given the kinds of, you know, the phrase that gets used now is wicked problems, right? Mm -hmm. And given the kinds of wicked problems that we're dealing with, how people in most professions have to do double duty. So for a journalist, it has to be that you both are a journalist and you have this whole other side of your brain that is a scholar, Mm -hmm. right? You can read the scholarly arguments. You can read the journal pieces. You can do the networking you need to do with other scholars to understand not only what questions to ask, but what kinds of... Of, sort of representational politics you might be falling into if you're writing about a place that you don't know about. And on the scholar side of it, I think you do have to write for multiple audiences and you mm-hmm. have to be willing to talk to people about your work in a way that you might not have been willing to do 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years ago. I do think um, one of the things that gives me pause about this with the, what did you call them, parachute journalists? Mm-hmm. So they're like the fly in, fly out people. And one of the things that gives me pause with that is that I get contacted by them a lot and less because of me and more because of the institution that I work in, right? Mm -hmm. They work for a particular publication. They Google my institution. They come up with me for Papua New Guinea, and then they want to ask me questions, and I'm almost always generous with them. I'm almost always generous with my time. And then I open up the Washington Post, and Mm -hmm. there's a quote from me that is insane that Mm -hmm. I never Mm -hmm. said that is a misrepresentation, but it also is a kind of misrepresentation of not just Papua New Guinea, but of, you know, my 20 years of scholarship there. Mm. And so I think there's this strange balance with these folks that you want them to get that information, but you want them to be able to process it in a way that's not crazy. Mm.
3: When I was talking about the question that I took back to all these anthropologists to work at the back end, I mean really it was a critical question because in the context of Heller it's what Exxon and the companies kept saying, it's not our fault that these people are fighting like this, mm-hmm. they've just always done that, it's got nothing to do with our project or with the resource or mm-hmm. with the failure to pay. Uh, to, to pay the um, uh, the royalties that are due to local people, so that so interrogating that question, that allegation, not our problem, not our fault, we mm. didn't do it, mm-hmm. actually became a really central question of the piece, but. it as any anthropologist would know, it's a really deep, difficult question. Mm. And it's a bit like something like looking at uh, you, at sorcery violence. Mm. You know, you hear these stories around sorcery violence. OK, so how do I put that in a context that makes any sense and makes it a responsible and useful piece of reporting mm. as opposed to some sort of salacious sort of thing that people get off on in some parts of the world, you know, that they want to mm. hear stories about witches and torture and I don't want to feed that mm. appetite. Yeah. So. Mm. And this is one of the deep
2: connections, I think, between our work, which is that, you know, my last book is in part about that impulse on the part of resource extraction folks and others working in Papua New Guinea to fall back on those narratives about violence, to fall back on those narratives about tribal fighting and sorcery instead of actually saying, okay, what's really happening?
0: Mm -hmm. Can I ask a follow-up question by way of anecdote? Uh, So I remember talking to a journalist about five years ago. I think it's the, it's the most traction I've ever had in newspapers. It was someone who wanted to go dumpster diving with me. Uh, and I thought it was going to be well, buried. Well, who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> um, for the viewers, oh, not the viewers, for the <laughs> for the audience at home, I'm covered in trash right now. Um, so I thought it was going to be buried in the back pages somewhere and it ended up on the front page of the Seattle Times because it must have been a slow news day. And then it ended up being picked up and reprinted, I think, about 17 or 18 times, I got calls from Australia about it. So when we went, I approached it with an anthropological uh, ethic, and so I talked to the journalist afterwards and I said, you know, if you want to run the interview by me, I can correct things. Uh, and she said, oh no, no, that, that'd be horribly unethical. I've talked to multiple sources, I go away and I, I create a story, I, you know, I don't give those sources any input into my, into my end result. Uh, and so as a result, or the, there's a side story about how you make sure that you dumpster dive safely. And one of the ways you do it is you fill up a sink full of water and you put half a cap of bleach in it. And that's how dishwashers sanitise dishes if you've ever worked in food service. And if you've got a, uh, an impermeable skin or an impermeable package, you dunk it in the, the bleach water and then you leave it to dry and the, the bleach evaporates off. And they printed half a cup of bleach <laughs> Um, and that went into the, because I didn't have a chance to, to check mm-hmm. the detail, that went into the, the Seattle Times and I just sort of shook my head and walked away and then it went into 17 or 18 other papers mm-hmm. uh, and I hadn't had a chance to to retract it. Mm-hmm. And I assume that people read that and are not silly enough to yeah. uh, to follow through. But I suppose that's a long-winded way of asking, how do you find your professional ethics differing on how to write about a place like Papua New Guinea?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a big question. I mean, maybe maybe I'll start um, in two ways. One is that, you know, I think that different journalists have different kinds of practices. And a lot of the people that I've worked with over the years do run quotes by you. I mean, Joe certainly has done that in the past and other people have too. But I think the question of representational politics and ethics is also somewhere that our work intersects. And, you know, In the past, when I first started out as an anthropologist, I was not as aware of the kind of replication of an older style of anthropology that I was doing even if I didn't mean to do it because I was not running everything that I wrote by the people that I work with I was certainly going back to the eastern highlands where I did my first work talking to people about what I was thinking about publishing having conversations with them about things that I was allowed to publish and not allowed to publish because you know if you work with indigenous communities there are lots of things that people don't want known and so I had those conversations but I didn't do what journalists often do which is say I'm going to write this section I'm going to quote you in this way is that okay I do that more and more now and Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that in some of the work that I've been doing the past six years has really stumped me in terms of writing how I how I do that how I go back and talk to people and it's actually not Papua New Guineans that um That I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. And another part of it is this larger question of decolonizing the profession of anthropology and perhaps the academy more generally, and then decolonizing the profession of journalism. And so for me, it's thinking about now how I empower young Papua New Guineans and not so young Papua New Guineans to go and tell these stories themselves and what my role is in that process. And so a kind of returning of Returning of not authority, that's the wrong way to say it, but a returning of the assumption of authority and how I create the conditions of possibility whereby Papua New Guineans, not just the Papua New Guineans that live in the rural places that I've worked or that are part of a specific community, but all Papua New Guineans can have this kind of representational sovereignty themselves. But how to do that in a way that never says no one else can tell those stories? Because I'm very mindful of that... Thin line between sovereignty over representation and then a kind of what I think of as 1990s identity politics that says that if you are not from Murray County, Georgia. You can never know anything or say anything about Murray County, Georgia, and so I think I think that fine line is something that we're all grappling with in anthropology and I think journalism these days.
3: Mm, absolutely. Your Washington Post uh, moment. I actually ended up using teaching some of my journalism students this week, and we were having this discussion. They're having a lot of people say, you know, I want to read the whole story before it's published, and and I'm saying to them, well, that would be public relations or you know, media Mm -hmm. communications, that's not journalism. But having said that, it is a kind of fraught question. And I've said in here and looked at and showed them the misquote of you in the Washington Post. I said, and this shows us what hideously can go wrong. And so many things get misrepresented by that one error. So how did that error get there? And possibly it's because what happens in disrupted newsrooms all the time now, people get thrown onto stories and they have not a lot of experience with a particular area. So their little alarms don't go off as they should. Did I get that quote right? You know, or whatever it was. There is not the level of rigor in the the editing and fact-checking because... You know, at some point in the not-too-distant past, most newspapers and certainly the Washington Post would have had an editor or three look at that go... I'd be quite surprised if a senior anthropologist said that, you know, <laughs> and, like, that just doesn't make sense. Can mm-hmm. you please check that? You know, mm. So those, all those sort of layers of correction and fact-checking and back-end effort to make sure that the end product is right, is correct, they've fallen away. Mm. So in a way that actually puts more onus back on us as reporters, particularly if we're jumping in and out of all these different kinds of stories but what I have at standard practice, because I've always been diving into things that are way too big for me <laughs> and way too ambitious, is that my practice generally is to send back, particularly if I've read somebody's, you know, all of the papers and, and and I've boiled down 20 or 30 years of their work to two paragraphs, I think it's not an inappropriate courtesy mm. to run that past them and say, have I got this right? Mm. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, and But what I do is I always send it, and, and in the negotiations around how I will use their st- either in print or or in emails or in our discussion I'll say I will check quotes with you or I will check the way that I have um, crunched down your work um, Mm -hmm. for for accuracy and errors of factor interpretation Mm -hmm. but you can't bring back that beautiful quote where you got angry or passionate or said something Mm -hmm. and say oh I wish I'd framed that better Mm -hmm. because I want that energy and spontaneity to still be in the quote I don't want to read like you you know sat there and corrected it and made it absolutely work perfect Mm -hmm. like you would in a document because then the story loses all its power um, and you lose all that spontaneity. So I very rarely show a whole story to people, but I generally will show them their quotes and context and, and will correct that if it's wrong.
0: I think maybe in most of our listeners at the moment are, are people training to be anthropologists in the future. So I wonder if you've got advice, just concrete advice about what to do the first time they get contacted by a journalist.
2: Google the journalist and look at the, and seriously, and look Mm -hmm. at the things that the person has written and see what kinds of Um, what kinds of stories they've done, what the kinds of representational politics at play in their stories are. See if they've written about the place that you work or the topic that they're asking you about. And then ask around because, I mean, I think, you know, the world of anthropology is pretty small and there will be people who work where you work or work on the questions that you work on that may have engaged with that journalist. And again, I, for a lot of reasons, am pretty open and usually talk to everyone. I do some work every year with the Columbia Journalism School working with their master's students Students, helping them think about how you write about places in the world like Papua New Guinea, and have learned a lot from them and learned a lot from Joe about the pressure that journalists are under. And it's not, it's not the same way it was 20 or 30 years ago. You don't have someone, as Joe said, who is an expert on a place. You have someone often very young, being paid very little money, who's got to get a story. Mm-hmm. And so you do want to help those folks the same way you want to help young anthropologists. Um, but Google, Google is your mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and also, I mean, Google, the fact is we're not just being fact-checked by uh, the specialists that we write about, it's the people on the ground as well. I mean, they see your stories now. They, they're shared on Facebook. The story I wrote about the PNG, LNG, Heller, is is physically stuck up, I know, right now on the side of the Uniting Church um, mm. in Tari wow. where people are reading it and then getting, I'm getting reports back. So mm. those stories get shared. If I got that wrong, mm-hmm. and I think Jared Diamond once got a story about Heller wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and their consequences can be pretty dire. Yeah. So, um but and that's a huge change. I mean, once upon, you know, not I was producing my first stories, the people that read them that I wrote about in Malawi or Congo or Afghanistan were not seeing those stories. Now they do. Mm. And I still remember it must have been before the 2012 election in PNG. And I'd worked quite hard at writing a story about the back end of the election and how elections work in PNG and what were the, you know, what what was the field like and what were the challenges. And I'd worked quite hard on the piece. I'd thought it could come up pretty solidly for twelve hundred words or whatever it was in a week. And then somebody put a headline on it um, that said Law of the Jungle. And I immediately got, but from from um, sharp talk, I got whacked as as it should have been. And I, so all these people, not just the scholars I'd spoken to, regular punters in PNG, going, what the, you know, and and so I. Luckily, I still had my editor's password. Got in the back end and fixed it, mm. and um, and you know got whacked the next day for doing it without authority. But mm. but you know we can fix now, mm. and we should fix, and and we will be helped made answerable to um, the little guy on the ground. And I regularly get. Um, groups of women in remote communities who have pulled together their sort of you know their Digicel cards in order to get the call through to me and long enough to say can you send us some credit we want to talk mm. <laughs> and so then I brace myself and wait wait for the call so you know you have I'm accountable to those people too.
2: So Washington Post, I must say, they actually did retract the quote almost immediately within 24 hours, Mm -hmm. which was amazing. Mm -hmm. But in terms of accountability, I think there's a way in which people fret about accountability. And I don't think you do, and I certainly don't, right? Accountability is a privilege. It's amazing that people can read your stories in Mm -hmm. real time. It's amazing that people can actually look up an article in American Anthropologist and get access to that in a way that they couldn't even 10 years ago. And I think if we sort of think about accountability as a privilege and something that's going to make our professional work stronger and better and more ethical, then that's very, very different than thinking about accountability as
1: a burden. But to that point, you're not only accountable to the people you're quoting in the, I guess maybe this is, accountability is the wrong word, but there are going to be responses from people who might control access to these worlds. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, uh, I mean, for both of you, this is relevant. Your work has a, a democratizing or, or critical edge to it. Uh, and that's not necessarily in the interests of some of the people who, let's say, control visas mm-hmm. or uh, forms of access to particular organisations um, mm-hmm. in, in different places. So I was wondering how does that how does that weigh upon you, and at what point does that weigh upon you the consideration of those kinds of interests?
3: Mm-hmm. PNG is a really uh, bad example of this in that um, journalist visas are incredibly difficult to get. Mm -hmm. They take two or three months, four months at a time to get. You pay like a $450 fee and if you don't get it, that's just down the drain. So as a freelancer, that's kind of a... A big effort. Uh, To get one really requires daily phone calls and emails for a period of weeks to keep pushing it through because it's got to go through three layers of government. Mm. And I've had experiences where the PM's department have okayed it, the Immigration Department have okayed it, and then someone in Foreign Affairs has said no. And, in fact, when I first tried to go to Manus a few years ago, the PM's department okayed my visa. I wasn't specific about going to Manus at that stage, but it was okayed by the PM's department, it was okayed by Immigration... And then I think I did say that I was going to go to Manus and the foreign affairs people said, we don't want any of you journalists coming in here causing trouble till we've sorted everything out. That was actually what they said. And then they banned all journalists getting into PNG for a period of months. So I've had 13 single entry journalist visas successful and probably three or four that um, fell over along the way. And I know there'll be a point, and I may or may not have already crossed it, where I will either not get another one or I will get turned around at the airport and I have had a couple of colleagues including a photographer I worked with a lot who's been banned um, and just can't get back at all. Mm-hmm. So that is, is an issue and I think you know particularly at the moment uh, and through the period of the recent um, earthquake mm-hmm. there was a lot of slamming of uh international media for not paying attention to this crisis and which is now a continuing crisis that we didn't care but I know of two major um, Fairfax and Guardian both tried to get reporters on the ground and couldn't get the visas through and so it Mm -hmm. fell over so this is a really big problem and and it's very politically controlling and Mm -hmm. and um, I'm even being a little bit careful now because (laughs) you have to be Um, but there'll be a moment at which I know I can't go back and at which point there'll be some stories that I might write that I haven't written yet. Mm.
2: I think for me, um, you know, and I also have research visas to Papua New Guinea, and I'm um, I'm mindful when I write about the Papua New Guinean state that that um, that I'm not a citizen of that country, and that there are ways in which I, as an American. Uh, believe that I can say what I want about my state, although that's becoming increasingly clear that that's not the case either. Um, And I just take I take very, um, very clear direction from the fact that I'm I'm not a citizen of that country. And so I don't criticize the state, you know, in terms of access to institutions that I've written about in very critical ways. Um, there are people that will no longer talk to me. There are institutions that will no longer allow me to talk to anyone that works for them. Um, there, you know, I could tell you a million stories about people that have basically gotten in my face at professional conferences and yelled at me. I once had someone stand up in a job interview and yell at me about the way that I wrote about WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society. You know, I had someone step off of an airplane um, in the Eastern Islands, and I'd been in the village for about six months at that point. I hadn't spoken English in six months. I was so excited to see someone I could speak English to. He got off the airplane, he looked me in the eye, he called me a bitch, and then walked away. Um, it's somebody who worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society. And so all of that is by way of saying that you, you have to be willing, if you're gonna tell a story the way it needs to be told, you have to be willing to alienate people. Mm-hmm. And I think you just have to be willing to do it for the right reasons. You have to be willing to do it because the story needs to be told that way or something needs to be brought to light. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that I've gotten very good at over the past 10 years or so is working with my local colleagues um, in telling stories that are not going to negatively affect them because I'm more worried about that than me at this point, particularly when I write about conservation, which after that first book, I said I would never, ever, ever do again because that was some of the most violent, nasty response to work Mm. that you can possibly imagine. Um, But I've gotten good at making sure that I don't write anything that means that my, you know, Papua New Guinean colleagues who were scientists and anthropologists are not going to get access. We could do a whole podcast on how mean (laughs) conservationists can be. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. You to mean conservationists. (laughs) I was just thinking, you know, sometimes, and I think a lot of us end up in one capacity or another working with people we would consider progressive you know, because we have aligned interests or because we're working in that space. And so we, we talked to Hugh in a few episodes ago about some of the ways in which he, uh, not deliberately, but, uh, but inevitably alienated the activists he worked with mm-hmm. because he was telling an anthropological story, not an yeah. activist story. And I'm just often surprised at the ways in which uh, the people we would like to be in dialogue with don't necessarily want to be in dialogue with us. Mm-hmm unless we're speaking a particular language to them. Mm
2: -hmm. It's, It's a reception issue in some ways, right? I mean, have you ever been written about? It's an uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling to mm-hmm. be written about, mm-hmm. and it's an uncomfortable feeling if you are doing something in the world that you think is incredibly progressive, that you think is the right thing to do. If you're a conservationist, if you have a kind of sense of moral authority, right? You're doing this thing that matters more than anything, and then someone comes in and says, well, actually, here's this other side to it. It's, it's very uncomfortable, and so mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. Um, I think part of it with me is that the sort of reception of a story is always connected to race, class and gender. And so I think that I got blowback from conservation folks a lot more than a man who told the same story would have gotten.
3: Mm. Yeah. Uh, Just on, I guess, questions of visas and access, one of the, having sort of talked about how difficult it can be to get in, one of the sort of refreshing, surprising, fabulous things about having got in... um in the Australian context, I've kind of learned why bother talking to politicians? I mean, really, they're never going to tell you anything, you know, that you'll get the spin. So you kind of go through this process where you ask them the question they give the predictable answer and then we all know we've done that bit and get on with the story. But <laughs> the box. But, and yet in PNG, you know, if you can get access to, you know, they will go toe-to-toe with you and, and really engage in this very raw way and and that's kind of fabulous. They're still pretty unspun in terms of, um, you, know, t- t- you know, having the discussion about about the issues on the ground once you get to them. Um, But there is another issue which uh, I I think it's in terms of, the access that local journalists have and the level of control and oversight and manipulation that they're having to endure and intimidation. And I'm very disappointed in my media peers, I guess, in, in and first world media peers, you know, the Australian context, that they are so kind of disinterested in the pressures that local journalists are enduring in Papua New Guinea and throughout the Pacific at the moment so many important stories that they need resources to deal with the climate change narratives which are a lot more complex than you know one day the seas will rise yes they are and they will but meanwhile you've got disease and disruption and and population movements already occurring which nobody's really unpicking and looking at how they fit within the climate story already so local journalists need resources to be able to tell that story themselves. Um, they're under enormous political pressure um, in a lot of contexts. There was a journalist very badly beaten in lay quite recently related to some political issues. There's another one in the case in Papua New Guinea. The journalists there are calling out for support, resources, training and, uh, and assistance and we're kind of blind and deaf to this and really a bit preoccupied with our own you know, hugely disrupted uh, media enterprise mm. and our own jobs. And
2: so that's an interesting way to kind of talk about one of the other intersections between our work, which is this question of representational sovereignty, right? And I know that you've worked really hard on thinking through how it is that you get resources to Papua New Guinean journalists. And I've done the same with getting resources to young Papua New Guineans who want to go on to get PhDs in anthropology and in ecology and in related fields. And one of the things that I think we don't talk about enough, at least in anthropology, when we talk about decolonizing anthropology, representation, all of that, that we don't talk about the sort of political economy of that. Who is going to pay for that? Who is going to actually create access? And who's going to create access in a super material way? You know, So kind of where the rubber meets the road, who's going to pay for somebody's PhD? Who's going to pay for them to bring their family? Because if you're a Papua New Guinean scholar, for example, you probably have a family and you don't want to come down to Australia or to the United States for six years to do a PhD without your family. And so I think that's a place that our work intersects and this set of shared questions maybe that we have about where are the kinds of financial backings for this this project going to come from?
1: Yeah, you mentioned earlier the decolonial turn. Well, I don't know if you use the word turn, but you know
0: it's the it's the phrase we use. We uh, name all of these things after birds. I don't know why? <laughs> Where are all these turns? I don't know the ontological turn. I always wonder what it looks like. I can never quite see it.
2: Can't you see them all and they're kind of fighting? <laughs> yeah. They're like those trash birds, Australian <laughs> trash birds. Yes, the Benjamin, yes. also known as the <laughs> Ibis.
1: Uh, but to, to that point, uh, I think academic disciplines can often think of decolonization as a, as a thing, that happened, as a historical mm-hmm. event, rather than a process mm-hmm. that may never have an end. Mm-hmm. And I think your comment gets to that, that we often don't think of the material factors that are going to need to change and continue to change without necessarily knowing what the you know what is the end point of, of decolonizing academic institutions, we don't know, yeah,
2: mm. I, I think we don't know, and I think that you know there's this wonderful piece by tuck and yang um decolonization is not a metaphor. And I teach Mm -hmm. it in all my classes where we talk about decolonization and really think about, so what does it mean to materially decolonize? Does it mean giving land back? If it means giving land back, then how's that going to happen? What's the politics of that? Does it mean repatriating sovereignty, which is what I focus on? But that question of the materiality of it, not just in terms of resources, but Uh, you know, my university, my university is on Lenape land, Mm -hmm. unceded Mm -hmm. Lenape land. And there's a tiny little plaque on the sort of northeastern side of the campus that is the only attention paid to the people who took care of that land for centuries before it was, they were dispossessed of it. And that getting that plaque, it took the Native American council and some of the faculty, um, not me, but some of the other faculty, years to get that in place. And so there is no, it's not lost on me that I talk about and write about decolonization, and yet I am on land that is owned by Lenape people with a tiny little plaque, Mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. So I think these questions are complex, and I think the decolonial turn, when I think of it, I think about there being the work that was done by African-American scholars in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s around decolonizing, and then this new wave that is connected to the amazing, wonderful growth in indigenous studies and the indigenous scholars that are coming into that field and into cultural studies and into anthropology and saying, no, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to
3: work on it, and we're going to think about it together. I guess, de- I'm thinking about decolonising the journalism. I guess that moment will, I mean, we still have in our head, I think, this idea that we know a crisis is real when there's some white bloke walking across the landscape with, you know, his sort of mufti shirt undone and possibly a flak jacket on and he's looking nervously across his shoulder because somebody could come at him any moment with a machete or whatever and and is explaining that this crisis and there's sort of, you know, women and children falling by the wayside and and this is, you know... Then we believe it's true because this important figure has sashayed into the landscape and told us this story about disaster... Whereas that person doesn't exist anymore, there's no newsroom, there's no enterprise that can pay him, um, and so we have to think about it differently. And that's why I, I was so excited, weirdly, in the middle of the of, of the earthquake crisis when the same organisations that couldn't get their reporters in there we said, oh, well, we won't be covering it. And I thought, well, no, actually, there are some terrific Papua New Guinea journalists who are in there right now or on their way now, and here are their contact details. And I saw one of their headlines in the front of the London Guardian was the byline for Scott Wade, a PNG journalist. And uh, I thought, you know, if that's got to be the beginning, doesn't it, that we say we don't need to get one of ours into there. He knows the story better than anybody. He yeah. has the contacts on the ground and he can put it in the context and he's a very accomplished storyteller Mm. and he gets it Uh, we don't need to be there Um, Mm. but that's still the default position when we can't get there ourselves but i think it's i'd really like to think about how we change the dynamic that that becomes the new normal
0: Mm -hmm. i mean that makes me think of uh, i know this is the case with uh scholars in anthropology and i suspect probably in journalism too that there's a lot of invisible caring labor and mutual aid on the part of people who always already have the, the privileged positions to try and share their resources. How do you see that unfolding? Do you, do you, see, uh, do you see that being sustainable? Do you see there being a way a way of, uh, of formalising that more? Or do you feel like there's just a lot of work of sort of passing on the privilege that we have left to do?
2: And so I think there are ways that it's being formalized. And I can talk a little bit about some of the work in Papua New Guinea that I've done with colleagues um, under the banner of a thing called the Papua New Guinea Institute of Biological Research, which is a small national NGO that really was founded with the the idea that the only way to effectively do environmental conservation in Papua New Guinea was to repatriate sovereignty over that conservation and the conservation planning that – it's going to happen in the country to national scholars. And so thinking, well, how do we do that? Well, we get national scholars out of the country to get PhDs and master's degrees and then get them back in the country in ways that will drive conversations about conservation. And that, you know, for almost 10 years was this incredibly effective way of doing just that, of saying, okay, so... There's some resources we can tap into as myself, as an anthropologist, some of my colleagues who are scientists, some of my colleagues who are university administrators, you know, all sorts of people working together to say, how do we set the structures that allow from those for those conditions of possibility? And you know, one of the things that has happened with PNGIBR is that as money has as money has shifted away from terrestrial conservation towards um, climate change and towards focus on ocean conservation, which, rightfully so, both of those things are incredibly important. It's been harder and harder and harder to fund this small NGO, and so I mean, one of the answers to your question, this is a garbled way of saying it, one of the answers to your questions is about sustainably being able to resource things. And that's where the that's where the problem comes up.
1: I have a kind of current events question, um, but I'm gonna take a small detour, which is uh, something in your work that you talk about a lot, Paige, is uh, this idea of the promissory notes of modernity, which is this idea that comes from Bjorn Whitrock. And it can be hard for people to understand outside of places like Papua New Guinea or let's say remote Australia or some First Nations places in North America, that while mining and conservation appear to be antithetical in terms of their material impacts on the world, the promises they make about the future can often be interpreted in similar ways by, by local peoples. And this is something you've explained really clearly. So given the current disappointments and anger about the PNG LNG project, amongst other things, uh, it makes me wonder about the status of that kind of promissory the promissory notes of conservation and, and mining in Papua New Guinea today. Do these ideas have the kind of pull that they did, uh, let's say, a decade ago or 15 years ago?
2: You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think it depends on the community that you're talking about. I think it depends on the relationship that people have already had with conservation promises or with mining promises or with logging promises or with development promises. I think that many of the people that I spend time with in the Eastern Highlands and also in New Ireland and in other places have had promises made to them so many times now that there's a level of cynicism that is hard to capture in language. Um, And it's a kind of Paralyzing level of cynicism. You know, there are folks in, let's say, New Ireland who have been promised that if they just take part in a special agricultural business lease, if they just deed over some of their sovereignty over land and sea to other people, that they will be given everything. They will be given access to medical care. They will be given access to functioning schools. They will be given access to everything that we might think about as development, and it hasn't happened. And it started not happening in the 1980s and then didn't happen again in the 1990s. Didn't happen again in the early 2000s. Didn't happen again five years ago. And, you know, you think about that. You think about two generations of people who have never had a promise fulfilled. And I think that's the case in many rural places in the country. And so um, I think there's a cynicism that is extraordinary. But I also think that there is a kind of ability to rebound from that cynicism and have an extraordinary amount of hope that this might be different this time, you know? And so it's vexing to me that people can have had that level of disappointment over and over and over again. And still there will be people in a community that say, no, 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 this is gonna be different. It's gonna be different this time.
0: By way of a sort of follow-up to that, I wonder if I could ask a sort of big question about uh, the, the global forces that we're up against. Your most recent book is, in a way it's about the way that capitalism manages to constantly outlive itself Mm -hmm. uh and so at the same time as we are in all the ways that we've already talked about struggling to best represent uh and struggling to change the politics of representation for and with the people we're working with Uh, the larger economic forces are also always working on making those representations into resources for themselves uh so in a sense, I just want to ask sort of what are we up against, Can
2: <laughs> <laughs> So you want to start with an easy question. So capitalism, <laughs> right. You know, so I, I
0: suppose how to, so, the, yeah, there's that big question which is always on my mind and which your book taps into perfectly about how capitalism constantly reinvents itself and reinvents itself through these representations. Mm-hmm. And then in that context – how do we speak back to it strategically?
2: Oh, that's, I mean, that's a question, isn't it? Mm. How do we speak back to it as writers? How do we speak back to it as activists? But also how do we speak back to it in a way that takes its almost insurmountable ability to shift and change as we shift and change our tactics into account? Mm. I mean, the question really is, is there a kind of political and economic form that we can imagine outside of capitalism or after capitalism? And the thing that I've been thinking about lately is not dismantling capitalism altogether, but thinking about is there a post-corporate capitalism form that we can imagine, right? Because, you know, I talk to my friends in Papua New Guinea. I talk to my family. I talk to people, you know, working-class folks in my neighborhood in New York. And the dream of ending capitalism that a lot of radical activists have is not their dream. And so I'm really mindful of that. But... I wonder if there is a way that we can imagine a kind of political economy that doesn't always aggregate the vast majority of wealth at the top. And that's kind of where I am now. Is there a way to think about a sustainable economic system that doesn't aggregate wealth because then that doesn't set the conditions whereby people have to do things like continue to extract resources? I mean, is there something we can think about there? So that is my Mm -hmm. non-answer to your incredibly difficult (laughs) question. but I do, I do think it's important to point out that there are a lot of anthropologists who think that there's a kind of radical critique of capitalism to be made, and then they go on and live their lives in these ways that are feeding into the system. You know, Bruce Robbins has just written this beautiful, brilliant book called The Beneficiary that I just – urge everyone to read, that is about the way in which we all benefit from the dispossessive systems that we as scholars take apart, right? So the the sort of impulse in anthropology to have a radical critique of capitalism and then go on doing your own thing is Mm. problematic. But the impulse to talk about dismantling capitalism without thinking about the people who are living on its edges that absolutely do not want it dismantled that they absolutely want to have the ability to be in the kind of weird space, physically weird space, mm. that all of us are sitting in right now. You know, So how, how do we do that? And again, I don't have an answer for it, but I think that is one of the most important questions of our time in anthropology.
1: Mm. I'm going to take that as a promissory note <laughs> <laughs> for the future. Uh, and I think this is a good time for us to draw a close to our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Paige and Joe, And thanks uh, everybody for joining us here in another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. This episode featured a conversation with journalist Joe Chandler and Columbia University's Paige West. If you'd like to learn more about Paige, you can find her at page-west.com. And if you'd like to look up Joe, you can find her at joechandler.com.au. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter I'm at TD Neil and David is at DH Border Giles. Or you can find more at blogs.deacon.edu.au/slash anthropology.